The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 together. And what we find in 9 and 10 is how Peter ends his letter. This is, this is it. This is the end. Now, there is verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. Those are salutary verses. Um, but this is how Peter, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, brings this letter to a close. And what he does is he draws our attention to the promise maker and the promise made. That's what I want us to see this morning in the text. If you would, just join with me reading. We'll start reading in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We saw last week that there is an adversary who is looking to devour us, that we have an enemy, and he is a, a, a powerful enemy, and his, his influence in this world is um, pervasive, and he is looking to devour us. And because of that, Peter calls us to be sober-minded and to be watchful because of our enemy, Satan. We are called by Peter in in verses um, 7 to be sober, or verses 8, verse 8, to be sober-minded and be watchful. Because we have an an adversary who is looking to devour us, We are sober-minded, we are watchful, so that we can, verse 9, resist him. Resist him. This is good news for us. This is good news for you. This is good news for me. Do you know why this is good news? This is good news because this means that we can resist him. When Peter says, resist your adversary, the devil, the implication here is that we are not hapless, helpless um, pawns in this, this world controlled, ruled by the devil, that we are able to resist him. And that indeed we must resist him. We must resist him. And we can know that when we do resist him, Though he be prowling around us like a roaring lion, when we do resist him, that he will, because of the power, the sovereignty, the authority of God, he will flee. There's a a sister verse 
to this, these verses in, in 1 Peter, found in James 4, verse 7. We saw it last week. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. That's humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Be watchful, be sober-minded, and resist him. And know that as we are resistant to him, he will flee from us. Now, Peter gives just this simple command, resist him. James gives this simple command, resist him. So that makes me ask a question. How do we resist him? What does that look like? Well, Peter does not tell us exactly how we are to resist him. But we can gather from other places in the scripture, especially from the Apostle Paul, that our resistance of him does require some spiritual armor. This is Ephesians 6. Starting in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the resistance. So how are we able to resist him? We're able to resist him as we have put on the full armor of God. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Now, we don't have time in this sermon to to go through the pieces of of the armor of God. If you're curious about that, ChristCentralChurch.net, sermons, find the one on Ephesians 6, and and I will have told you about it. Um, But notice what, what Peter says and what Paul is, is saying. Peter says, he calls us to resist him and to do it firm in your faith. Right, And then look at what Paul says there in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So there's this common language of resisting the devil and doing it as we are firm in our faith, as we are are, um, standing firm. To be firm in your faith means to be steadfast to be sure, to be immovable, to be strong, to be strong. Standing firm, not in your own strength, not in your own might, not in your own abilities, not in your own knowledge, but standing firm in your faith, in your faith. What does this mean? This means that even as we may be under spiritual attack. We are to continue in the faith. We are to continue in the trust of God. Now think about this in context of who Peter's writing to. We've talked, you know, for eight months now of how this church is under immense persecution and they're entering into um, probably the greatest season of persecution the church has ever seen. 
And persecution can work and be an instrument of evil to weaken our faith. God intends for it to strengthen our faith. But it can weaken our faith. So what, what Peter's saying here is as you suffer, you resist the devil and you stand firm in your faith. You are sure. You are steadfast. You are immovable. You are strong in your trust in God. Your trust in God. This is faith. What is faith? We stand firm in your faith. What is faith? Is faith just your beliefs? Because that's how some people would understand faith. It's just your beliefs. Whatever you believe is your faith. What you, you, maybe you've heard, what's your faith, right? Well, your faith may be the faith of Islam or the faith of, of um, Hinduism or the faith of whatever an atheist would have faith in. Human ability. But faith is not just your beliefs. And when, when Peter says, stand firm in your faith, he's not talking about some subjective belief. Faith is not subjective in nature. Do you understand what I say when I, what I mean when I say subjective in nature? Subjective is, is like if it's true for you, it's, it's true. If it's true for you, it's true. It's subjective. It's dependent on the one who is, is making the decision. Faith is not subjective in na- nature. Faith is objective in nature. It's objective in nature. Faith is set on something specific. That's what Peter has in mind when he says, stand firm in your faith. It's not just whatever you believe. But instead, it's something specific, something objective. Faith is the revealed truth concerning Christ and salvation. That is your faith. Specifically, the revealed truth, God's word, as it has revealed to us the truths of God concerning Christ and salvation. Now, is it a leap for me to say that is what Peter intends? I don't think it is because Peter's already shown us this. He's already told us this. This is 1 Peter chapter 1 starting in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. There it is. The salvation of your souls. So what's the the outcome of your faith? The salvation of your souls. Now concerning this salvation, which is the subject of the faith, right? If the, if the outcome of the faith is the salvation of your souls, then the subject of your faith is salvation. So what is salvation? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Peter does is he simultaneously shows us that the subject of our faith is found in God's Word. That is, the prophets who prophesied about the grace. And it is centered 
on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is how I know when Peter says, resist him standing firm in your faith. He doesn't mean standing firm in whatever you believe. He means standing firm in the revealed truth concerning Christ and salvation, specifically. You resist him as you stand firm in Jesus Christ. Your faith is, it should be, it is, the only faith is the gospel. We resist the devil, putting on the full armor of God, and standing firm in the gospel that is now ours by the grace of God. We resist him as we cling to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, we can be encouraged, Peter says, knowing, he continues, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That there is common unity and encouragement and knowing that suffering is the common state of the church wherever it is found. There is unity and there is encouragement to know that we, as we suffer, we are not alone. We are not peculiar. There's not something wrong with us. And that's the reason why we're suffering. We are suffering because the church suffers. And it is encouraging to know that your circumstances are not unusual. They're commonplace. Nobody else encouraged by that? I'm encouraged by that. That there are brothers and sisters all around this world, even today, who are suffering for the name and the glory and the sake of Jesus Christ. They're suffering. And they're standing firm as they resist the devil. And if they can do it, I can do it. There's encouragement in this. There's encouragement in this. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then comes the promise maker and the promise made. This is where I want us to spend the majority of our time today. The promise maker and the promise made. Verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see at the end of the verse the promise made. That it is that you will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. That's the promise made. But first, Peter brings us face to face with the promise maker. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, Peter says. Now, every single one of us in this room have been made promises before. And every single one of us in this room have experienced promises broken. And all of us know just from life that a promise is only as good as the one who made it. Right? A promise is only as good as the one who made it. So what Peter is doing is first and foremost, before he ever gives the promise, 
He's holding up the one who has made the promise to drive home the guarantee of the promise made. Here's what he says, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. Now, how long is that? How long is a little while? Well, Peter is intentionally vague here. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is intentionally vagueness. If Peter wanted to be crystal clear, if the Holy Spirit wanted it to be crystal clear, then they would have made it crystal clear. But they didn't. And he didn't. There is no set time as to when the promise maker fulfills these promises made. Now there is much discussion and much debate about when these promises will take place. The promise to be um, established and strengthened, restored. There's lots of debate as to when this promise will be fulfilled. There's lots of debate in what is meant in after you have suffered a little while. And the the debate revolves around, is this a promise for this life or is this a promise for the next life? So when we read this, after you've suffered a little while, then the God of all grace who's called you will himself do these things. Is that a promise to say after a little while means after you're dead? Or after a little while means after you've suffered on this earth a little while before you die. Now, I read both arguments. And here's where I landed. I think it is both and. This is a promise for both the next life and this life. And I think there's intentionally vagueness in the language to drive home this point. Because, church, listen, either way, if these these things happen to us in this life or in the next life, either way, these promises are sure. And we have to be okay if the little while is in the next life. If the after you've suffered a little while means that you've taken your last breath and you never in this life got to experience these things, we have to be okay that that promise made is a promise kept in the next life. We have to be okay with that. And we have to understand that if that is the case, that it doesn't make these promises untrue or it doesn't leave these promises unfulfilled. Because we can know that these are sure promises. And how can we know? We know it because of who the promise maker is. He is the God of all grace. And he will see to it himself that these promises are realized. 
after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. This is the only place in all of the scriptures that God is called the God of all grace. He's the God of all grace. How much grace? All grace. Now, for these believers, that's who he's writing to. He's writing to believers. For these believers and for those of us who are believers, we can understand that God has already promised eternal saving grace. Right? That we've received the grace of God, but yet we've not received the grace of God. It's an already, not yet. We've received it, but we haven't received it. We will receive it when we die or when he returns and we stand before him. That's when we receive his grace, his eternal grace, his saving grace, right? That's, we were saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. But that's not all of his grace. That's just part of his grace. That's his saving grace. There is also present Here and now for us, grace of God. There is saving grace, eternal, eventual grace, but there is also sustaining grace. The grace of God that will see us through this life, that will sustain us, that will keep us, that will provide for us, that will bless us. This is the sustaining everyday grace of God. And he is the God of all grace. God's grace is multifaceted. It's like a diamond. You can hold it up and you can stare at it and you can twist it and you can't even count the facets. It spreads light and glory everywhere. Peter's already told us this. In 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied Grace, as of his multifaceted grace. There is lots of grace in the God of all grace. Saving grace, sustaining grace, strengthening grace. And Peter, of all people, and I believe it's why he, and he alone, says he's the God of all grace, understands God's sustaining, strengthening restoring grace. Now, why would Peter know the grace of God, especially? Because it was Peter who three times denied Jesus Christ. You talk about blowing it, he blew it. He was scared of a little girl. He blew it. You think, you, if you think of a man who didn't deserve it, a man who had proved himself unworthy, who had proved himself to be a coward, who had proved himself to be faithless. It was Peter. But you think of all that Jesus had poured into him in those years of ministry and all that Jesus had entrusted to him. And then Peter, in, I mean, the moment that all of history has been waiting for, denies him three times. Can you imagine? But what did Peter experience? He experienced the God of all grace. The sustaining, restoring grace of God. And God graciously restored him and is now 
as he writes this, empowering him and inspiring him. And he's using him as a minister of his very grace. He's the God of all grace, church. He's the promise maker, and he is the God of all grace. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. It is the God of all grace that calls you to his grace for an eternal glory in Christ Jesus. He's the God of all grace. And that's, that is good news that he's a gracious God. But it's only good news if he extends his grace. And that's what Peter says. The God of all grace, he is the one who has called you. He's called you. He himself has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. This is not a new uh, thought in the Apostle Peter. He well understands the effectual call of the gospel on the life of a sinner. He starts the very letter out this way in 1 Peter 1.1 clearly to the elect exiles of the diaspora of the dispersion. You are elect. What does that mean? You are chosen by God. You are called by Him. And then 1 Peter 1.15 But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, driving home the fact that it's God who's called you to His grace. 1 Peter uh, 2.9 and 21 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. They were called into His grace, God's grace, by the God of all grace. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is because He has called you. It is because He has chosen you. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Peter highlights the promise maker before the promise made. Look to the God of all grace before you look to the promise. So we love to look to the promises. We love to claim the promises. We love to rest on the promises. But before we ever get there, church, we look to the promise maker. The promise is only as good as the one who made it, and it is the God of all grace who called you that made the promise. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory Will himself. That didn't have to be there. 
Peter didn't have to put that there. The Holy Spirit didn't have to inspire that. Do you see the length at which God is going to make sure that you understand that he's the one that's made the promise and because he's the one that's made the promise, he's the one that's going to see the promise through and the promise is secure in him? Do you see it? The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself do these things. These things are found in God. They're accomplished in God. They're not found in a preacher. They're not found in a church. They're not found in circumstances. They're found in a person. Jesus Christ. He will himself. He will himself do these things. Well, what's he going to do? Four things. He's going to restore you. He's going to restore you. Some translations say perfect you. When you read that, if it says perfect, you can sort of think, well, that probably means in the next life. That's why I like that the ESV uses the word restore. This is the same word used in Matthew 4.21 of mending nets, of mending fishing nets. What does it mean to mend a net? It means that there's a a tear, there's a break that renders a net not as effective for the purpose for which it was made. And so the fishermen then will take and will mend the net to fix what's been broken in it. This is the promise that God has made. That he will, by his grace, make us complete. It is to make fully prepared. It is to supply what is lacking or broken. This is the word used for, in their day, if you were to break a bone and go and you have that bone set back into place, this is the word. It's to take what is broken and to repair it. It is to supply what is lacking or what has been damaged. Now, in context, it seems pretty clear to me That this promise is that as we suffer, guess what we're going to suffer? Damage, pain, hurt, loss. But after we've suffered a while, the God of all grace is going to come in and he's going to set our bones. He's going to mend us back together. He's going to restore us. He's going to supply to us what's been taken from us in suffering. Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Same exact word. What do you do as you restore this brother? You you set him back together. You don't break him more. You come alongside of him to fix what's broken. Ephesians 4, 12 Scriptures say that God gives to the church pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The building up, same word. 
1 Thessalonians 3, 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Same word. Paul wants to get to them so that he can supply what's lacking. God promises to supply what's lacking. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of all peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I I want to preach that verse. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Same word. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. This is God's promise. He will restore you. Set your bones. Mend your broken nets. And the promise is made by the promise maker. And it is sure. It may be in this life, but it may be in the next. Either way, it is sure. You will be restored by the God of all grace. Second is to confirm This is to establish or to make steadfast. He will make you steadfast. Romans 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Same word. To make sure, to make steadfast the promises of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 1, 8. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same word, sustain you, establish you. Colossians 2, 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. Same word, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, here's the reality, church. Suffering breeds doubt. It does. It does. We wonder, why is this happening to me? Is there something wrong? Is God really there? Does God really care? Is this really in his control? If he loved me, why would this be taking place? Is he really good? Is he really gracious? Why would God let bad things happen to good people? Suffering breeds doubt. But the promise of God is that God's grace will work after we've suffered a little while. It will work to make us steadfast to establish us in him. Now, these what what sort of came off the page to me is that these things are working together. That God's promise to restore you, to set your bones, to mend your nets, to fix what is lacking, what is damaged, what is broken. And as you are restored, guess what the grace of the restoring grace of God is doing? It is Proving His grace and goodness. And you are, through that process, you're being confirmed. Oh, He does love for me. He does care. He is good. He is sovereign. This is in His perfect plan. And all of a sudden, you're being confirmed. You're being established. You're being made steadfast. And as that's happening, guess what? You are being strengthened. Strengthened. That's the third promise. And here here is the the emphasis here that it is God himself who will strengthen you. Now, y'all ready for this verse? 
You've probably never heard it before. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You ever heard that one? It's obscure. That's the athlete's favorite verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the, the emphasis on that verse, I hate to break it to you, church, that's not you and that's not your strength. The emphasis of that verse is the God of all grace who will strengthen you. I can do all things through who? Through Him who strengthens me. It's His strength that enables me to do these things. So now, as we are restored, as we are confirmed, it is God Himself who is strengthening us. The strength comes from Him. This is His promise. You will be strengthened. You feel weak? Guess what? You will be strengthened. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in your strength, in your abilities. No, mm -mm. be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. Guess what that is? After you have suffered a little while. That's what that is. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the promise made. You're going to be restored. You're going to be confirmed. You're going to be strengthened with his strength. And then lastly, you're going to be established. You're going to be settled. You're going to be secure. This is the word for a foundation. It's the word Jesus uses in parable when he says, the builders went on a rock and went on the sand and the wind and the storms came. What was the foundation? This is the foundation. It is to be settled, to be established, to be set, to be resting securely on the foundation of Jesus Christ. God, the God of all grace, who has called you, will himself see that you are set firm on Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because I don't have the ability to keep faith. I don't have the ability to keep firm. There's not enough foundation in me. I need the God of grace to hold me fast. And to set me secure on Jesus Christ. And to keep me there. Lord, we're prone to wonder. So bind our hearts to you. That's his promise. These promises, church, listen. These promises, they are yours. Just as suffering is promised, the common experience of the church, just as suffering is promised after you've suffered a little while, 
These are promised. And they are sure promises. This is how Peter closes out the whole letter. This is it. A letter on suffering. Here's the promises. After you've suffered a little while, church, you will be restored. You will be confirmed. You will be strengthened. You will be established. These are your promises. This will happen, and it is sure to happen. How can we know we are sure? Because we don't look only to the promises, church. We look to the promise maker, the God of all grace. The one who has called us. He will see to it himself. That these promises are fulfilled. They are ours in Christ Jesus. They're ours church. They're ours. After we have suffered a little while. After we've suffered a little while. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.